and follow him. And to the angel of the church in Sardis writes, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Thanks be indeed, and may he give us ears to hear what the Spirit says in his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this word. Jesus, we thank you for how you look after your church, how you are the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, who holds the seven stars in your hand, who, from whom the seven spirits come to your church, Lord, the fullness of the spirits. You hold the church completely by your sovereign power and grace, Lord. You hold your people, the ministers, the elders in your, in your hand, Lord. And we pray that as a church now, we would sit humbly underneath your word. We pray that, God, we would heed the call to wake up that is in this text for your church. We also pray for the little theologians. We pray for our covenant children, Lord, that they too have the responsibility of hearing your word. Lord, that they must hear it. They must receive it. They must keep it just as all of us who are here. And we confess, Lord, that we need your help in doing this. We pray for the ministry of your spirit to be at work in the hearts and lives in this room today, Lord. God, call us to conviction and repentance. Comfort us with the the majesty, the, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to go from here, Lord, even further, further solidified and confirmed in our, our allegiance to you, Lord, and to your to your word and to your kingdom. We pray this now in your holy name. Amen. Once upon a time, there lived a king whose wealth and power were unmatched. The king's renown was further known by the great wall that he had built around his city to protect his wealth and power. This wall, this fortification, reached heights of 1,500 feet in the air. This massive fortification was built in such a way that it made the king's city impregnable. No army could take it. Time and time again, the king's resourcefulness had been proven right as army after army had come and had seen the fortification and turned around, leaving the king and his kingdom secure. That is, until a foreign king came. This foreign king saw the massive fortification and instead of retreating, he encamped his army around the city and waited for the opportune moment. It wasn't too long after that, that one night, one of the foreign king soldiers noticed a soldier on the wall looking down over the wall 
and his helmet dropped to the ground. What happened next, you cannot make up. History records that that uncovered soldier walked down a little set of stairs and opened a secret door, went out, got his helmet, closed the door, and went back in. Now the foreign king had the key to the city. He sent a convoy of forces to the other side of the city, creating a diversion while his special forces went in through the secret door and took the city. Just when the king thought he was safe, he was not. That not only happened once, it happened twice. When another foreign king, many hundred years later, invaded invaded after the, the proud king had rebuilt his impregnable fortifications. He rebuilt it, only this time the foreign army noticed that there were vultures that camped around one side of the wall. They never flew away from that side of the wall. The foreign army noticed that soldiers from inside the city would throw dead bodies over the wall for the vultures to eat. And what they noticed after they observed for many, many days is that that part of the wall was unprotected. So the foreign army took that gate, went in, and conquered the city. Just when they thought they were safe, they were not. Well, that man was a, was a man by the name of Cratius, and his kingdom was, city, was centered in the city of Sardis, the same Sardis that we find here in Revelation 3. And the Lord Jesus brings that sobering warning that you are well, familiar, well aware of. You think you are alive, Jesus says, but you are dead. In an hour you know not, I will come against you. Those words would have rung in the ears of the members of the church in Sardis. You think that you are safe, but you are not. This summer we've been looking at the magnificent book of Revelation. A book that concludes the canon of scripture as the fitting final word from heaven about the glory and the supremacy of Jesus Christ over the entire cosmos. That's the purpose of the book, by the way. Jesus Christ is the purpose of the book of Revelation. It is the revealing or the unveiling, the, the pulling back of the curtain of history so that all may see and marvel that it is the exalted Son of God who reigns over all things. And this book is given to the benefit of the church. The reason that we are given this incredible book, friends, is that above all else as a Christian, above all else as a church, we would see Jesus as he truly is. As he is currently, today, right now. Now why is that important? It's important for us because of what is at stake for us. What is at stake for the church in her witness to the pagan world around her. And in her faithfulness to the Lord who calls her to stand out. Who calls her to endure persecution and hostility when it arises. And to hold fast to the truth and not compromise. Not compromise culturally or tolerate teaching that is contrary to the truth that is found in our sovereign supreme Lord alone. And it's the church in Sardis that is a sobering example for all of us. Of what can happen when the church forgets its identity. When it forgets why it exists in the first place. To testify to, to hold fast to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus. As John said in chapter 1. That he was a prisoner for the sake of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
And the church in Sardis is a sobering example of what happens when a church forgets God. That is not to say that it has been an easy road for the church at the end of the first century. Really going back to the time of Jesus himself, when Jesus was rejected, when Jesus was unjustly condemned, brutally tortured and crucified, going all the way back to the inception of the church, it had never known a peace of or it had never known a period of peace or serenity. Following the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the apostles led by Peter and John, they began preaching that Jesus is the crucified, the risen, the reigning Messiah. And immediately they are told to be silent or else. They had just watched, they had just watched their own rabbi be hung on a Roman cross. What did they think would happen to them if they continued to preach in his name? And the persecution and the affliction and the suffering, all following in the way of the cross that had been for our Lord, it ensues right away for the church. Peter and John are beaten with, with Peter eventually jailed. He is thrown into prison and he is seemingly waiting to be executed in the book of Acts before an angel miraculously saves him. Stephen and James, the brother of John, are both martyred in Jerusalem of all places. And then Paul's own suffering and hardship, they, they we know, friends, were divinely ordained for Paul. As Paul is told following his conversion, that Jesus, Jesus will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of his name. And so by the time this letter is written to the church in Sardis, all of the apostles, with the exception of John, have been killed. John, who knew these seven churches well, John himself was an elder at one point in Ephesus. He was taken away. And he, they tried to kill him by boiling him alive. That He survives this brutal attempt on his life somehow. And after that, he is exiled to the prison island of Patmos, some 40 miles away from the coast of Turkey, living on a rock, breaking rock, never again to see the faces of those that he knew in these churches. That is the cultural, that is the social, that is the political world that the church in Sardis finds itself. Fierce persecution, fierce opposition are all that the church has known up until this point. The pressure, the pressure to fold, brothers and sisters, was high. And the pressure to conform and go along was even higher. This is where we step into the letter that Jesus wrote to this church. Little theologians, kids, here is your sermon homework for today. I want you to draw a picture of a great king, kids. A great king leading his, his people in a victory parade with them wearing white robes, kids. A victory parade with a king on a horse and his, his people following him in white robes, kids. And then here's the question for you. What does the Lord Jesus call the church in Sardis to be? What does he call this church to do? Now, that is the big question for us today as well. I want you to consider this question. How are we as a church called to respond to our Lord's word here? His word to the church in Sardis, how are we as a church to respond as well? That's the question I want us to consider. Our response to what Jesus calls the church in Sardis to do. 
Now, first look with me at verse 1 and our Lord's credentials to this church. Credentials meaning how he presents himself to this church. What we've said up until this point is that the way that Jesus presents himself to each church speaks directly to their need, their need, what they need to be reminded of, of him, given what they are facing. And what, what is Jesus' word? What are his credentials to Sardis? Verse 1. The words of him who has seven spirits, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We've already seen this description back in chapter 1. But here Jesus wants the church in Sardis specifically to know that he is the one who richly supplies the power of the Holy Spirit to his churches. As we've noted previously, numbers in the book of Revelation are largely symbolic. They are largely symbolic, symbolic, which means they are meant to convey a deeper, richer meaning. We see that here in the description of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says the seven spirits of God here. There are, of course, not seven different spirits, but one Holy Spirit. And what we said when we looked at this in chapter 1 is that the number seven conveys fullness or completion. Like the seventh day of creation when God rested on the seventh day. It was completed. It was full. And so God rested. The best way, the best way to understand Jesus' use of seven here is to look at a familiar passage in Isaiah 11. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there with me just briefly. Look at this passage in, in Isaiah 11, verse 2. It's a passage that we typically hear read at Christmas time. But here it has implications for what Jesus says to Sardis. And I want you to look at it with me. Isaiah 11, verse 2 says this. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That is on the Messiah. That is on King Jesus. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It is the spirit of the Lord who is also the spirit of wisdom. And the spirit of understanding. And the spirit of counsel and might and so on. This is what we mean when we say the fullness of the spirit. This is the fullness of the spirit that Jesus possesses to distribute to whomever he wills. That's the implication of what Isaiah 11 says, that the Messiah, the spirit, the fullness of the spirit is going to rest on him. And that he is going to have the complete abundance of the spirit. And it's also the implication here in Revelation 3. Because what Jesus is getting at, friends, is that what the church lacks, Jesus has the power to give. Jesus has the power to give it powerfully to the church. And what is that that they need? They need the power of the Spirit. They need spiritual life. But he also mentions the seven stars. You see that there in verse 1? And back in chapter 1, when Jesus also mentioned the seven stars, he talked about the messengers to these churches or the pastors of these churches, those that were entrusted with delivering the word of the Lord to the congregations. Now here's the question. Why are they mentioned here again? Because they, friends, along with the Spirit, are absent in Sardis. Faithful leaders, faithful shepherds, the work and the power of the Spirit are completely missing from this church. Now that sounds like an oxymoron, like impossible. How can that be? A church devoid of the spirit and power, a church devoid of faithful and persevering shepherds and elders. How can that be? We're going to see 
just how that happens and what Jesus calls them out for. Look at his condemnation starting at the end of verse 1 and following. Christ's condemnation of Sardis. He says this at the end of verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. Rather than the threat of them becoming dead, it says they are dead, or at least their works are dead. And what's interesting here is that Jesus, earlier in Thyatira, in Pergamum, he presented himself as the all-knowing, the all-seeing Lord, judge, who would come against those in the church who were threatening its existence. Here, the situation is much more dire. They are dead. The church is dead. Which we know from his introduction here, he's, he is getting at spiritual death here. There's no life there. There's no life. And the way he says it is meant to get our attention. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And your works, into verse 2, look at what he says at, at, at the end of verse 2. Your works are not acceptable in my sight. That's what he's saying there at the end of verse 2. When he talks about you have the reputation of being alive, this is another way of saying that the name that they bear, the name that they bear, that is the question. Do they really bear the name of Christ? Do they really bear the name? Because on the outside, everything looks fine. Everything appears normal. But, of course, Jesus knows their hearts, and he knows what is missing there. And what we can gather as we put all, all, the, all the rebukes or the statements of condemnation here to this church, putting those all together, where he says, you think you are alive, but you are really dead. Where he talks about those who haven't soiled their garments. And that those who overcome, Jesus will confess their name before his father and the angels. What we can gather is that the church in Sardis had long since compromised its witness in the eyes of the Lord. Their garments were soiled. They had attached themselves to the culture. They had attached themselves to the world around them. And they had become unclean. They had become polluted. They had given in to the pressure around them. The temple feast, the, idol the idolatrous worship, the burning of incense to Caesar and confessing allegiance to him. Staying quiet, staying quiet about the testimony of Jesus over against those who would oppose that testimony. Interesting, the, the archaeological digs that have happened in ancient Sardis record that the synagogue was built next to a Roman bath and that the church would have met in that, in that place, in that synagogue next to a Roman bath. And that history has also found that in the marketplace, there was the mark of a Christian, a Christian merchant right next to a Jewish merchant. And what, what scholars believe is that these these were compromises that the church had made in this city, which Jesus is referring to. Because the church struggled there in the first century of being able to have commerce, being able to trade because of the testimony, because of their identity as Christians. But the, Sar the, the church in Sardis had compromised. And don't miss where, where compromise had led. Jesus says death. What's striking, what's striking, too, about this is how quickly that had happened, how quickly it had happened. This is within the same generation that the church was planted. This was within the lifetime of the apostles. It's a vivid reminder to us, thinking about that, 
that within one generation, within the same time period, the Apostle John is still alive. This church, much like we said about Pergamum and Thyatira, had been most likely from the fruit of the ministry of the Apostle Paul there in Acts 19, where the word spread to all of Asia Minor. Sardis was in Asia Minor. So a church that no doubt Paul had had an influence on at the very least, or that Paul had, had likely visited at some point. And yet, Jesus is saying that they are dead at this point. It's a vivid reminder, friends, about where the church's life and power come from. That what not only birthed the church, what, what is not only responsible for the inception of the church, but also what sustains and protects the church. It's a vivid reminder of that. It's a reminder that those things don't come from individuals. They don't come from individual agendas or charismatic leaders. As a matter of fact, Paul Paul rebuked the church in Corinth for that, where he said, I, he talked about there in, in Corinth that people, the division was in the church because some said they followed Paul, some thought, said they followed Apollos, some followed Christ, Paul says. It's not about the charismatic leader, and it's not from listening to or taking cues from the culture about what the church should be or what the church should do or what the church should teach. No, it all comes from the Lord who provides the fullness of the Spirit. And spirit-filled shepherds who feed and tend the lambs of that great shepherd. Remember, those were the things that Jesus introduced himself with. The one who has the seven spirits. The one who holds the seven stars in his hands. The fullness of the spirit. Spirit-filled shepherds who tend and lead the lambs to the great shepherd. The great shepherd who alone is the source of living water and living bread from heaven. As the gospel of John talks about Jesus said, if you recall in John's gospel, he said, For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Faithful shepherds are to present that again and again to the church. This is what brings the church into existence, and it sustains the church moment by moment. The emphasis, friends, indeed, the very lifeblood of the church is on the ministry of hearing, of tasting and seeing and believing the one who alone is the true food and drink of our souls. Everything that we do as a church, as a matter of fact, in our service, in this service that we do every week, is aimed at that. As a matter of fact, it's when we, it's when we forget, when we forget that that is the focus, that, that everything flows from that, from Jesus his word, his, his means of grace for us as a church. When we forget that, we begin to drift away. When compromise becomes much easier and pragmatic. When individual agendas can take over and threaten the life of the church itself. The church's witness suffers as a result of that. And here, as we look at this text, just like the, the church in Sardis, we're reminded of the, the immense responsibility that we have as a church Carrying the name of Christ, bearing his name to a watching world. In that we are faithful to him, we are faithful to him and to his word, not to the world and to its way of thinking. Sardis faced that pressure. And that, that pressure is not, not unlike the pressure that we are facing in our day. 
for them in the first century, there was the very, there was the pressure to, the, the, the public acknowledgement of who was supreme. Was it Christ or was it Caesar? For us in our day, the public acknowledgement isn't so much about the person of Caesar, but about the ideas of Caesar, about the politics of Caesar, the social pressure from Caesar, and how they conflict with the authority and the supremacy of King Jesus. This is the tension that we live in today, friends. For them, they face the very real possibility of imprisonment and death for standing with Jesus. For us, it's not imprisonment or death at this point, but ostracism, castigation, character assassination, slanderous accusations of Christians. It's gaslighting and it's ad hominem attacks against us and everything that we stand for. In other words, it's death at the social and political level. And even now, friends, that death is coming for us at the ecclesiastical level. As churches and denominations are divided over issues of sexuality, of race relations, of social justice. And we see it happening in our country that those within the church are turning against one another. Much like it must have been for these first century churches. Because Jesus in each one of these churches that he rebukes, he also calls out. He commends those that are holding fast. Here, as he says, those who have not soiled their garments. Who have not become polluted by the culture around them. And so as we think about this, it can leave us wondering, what are we to do? What can we do as Christians, as a church? Well, with each church, Jesus had a response for that church. Remember, be faithful, purge, discern. We looked at those. Now Jesus is going to turn up the heat, so to speak. As his call to this dead church is to wake up, to wake up. There are five key commands that encapsulate what Jesus means by waking up. You see it there in verse three and following, verse two and following. Five key commands. The first thing, of course, he says is to wake up, wake up. The call to wake up is associated with being alert, being watchful, being sober minded, being discerning. In other words, it's a spiritual flex in a material in a material and hedonistic world. It is being led by the Spirit when everything around you is not led by the Spirit. When everything around you says that is absolute baloney, that is absolute garbage, what you should do is live by your flesh, live by what your eyes can see, live by how you feel all the time. When Jesus calls his church to wake up, he is saying, you must put that aside and you must flex your spiritual muscles. You must flex. Because this you know, this you know, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. That is step one of waking up from sleep. To put on the armor of light, step two. To let us walk properly as in the daytime, step three. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what, that's what Jesus is getting at when he talks about wake up. Wake up. 
or walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, awake and rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. And as you do that, look carefully to how you walk, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That was essentially the call from Proverbs chapter one to walk as wise, not as unwise, to walk in the wisdom of the fear of the Lord. Walking in the light with the armor of light. In all that is good, right, and true. Casting off the works of darkness. Making no provision for the flesh. Wearing your identity in Christ. Walking in wisdom and discernment. Because the days are evil. Arise, O sleeper, arise. And Christ will shine upon you. It's time to wake up. Look carefully to how you walk. To how you live. Why? Because the days are evil. The days are evil second command that he gives is strengthen what remains jesus says not all is lost in sardis there are some true believers there and jesus is calling them to take the lead and calling the church back to number three remember what you have received and heard this is an implicit call back to the gospel what they had received what they had heard remember and return to it lest what remains what is flickering barely goes out Even amid this terrifying word, friends, the call to wake up and respond in faith goes out. There's still time, in other words. Even as bad, even as bad as things appear to be, there's still hope. Redemption is possible. One of the more vivid and graphic portrayals of this And I emphasize graphic because this is not an endorsement for all of us to go home and watch this movie tonight. But one of the more vivid and graphic portrayals of this in our pop culture actually came from the superhero world in the film Logan from a few years ago. Logan, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is the actual name of the Marvel hero or anti-hero, depending on your point of view. Wolverine, Wolverine from the X-Men. Wolverine, who is, the name might suggest, is very animalistic in his rage and his appetite for violence and carnage. But the main question I submit to you, the main question in the 2017 rated R film is this. Is redemption possible for the worst of the worst? Is redemption possible for the worst of the worst? Is there any hope of peace and forgiveness for someone like Logan who has spent his entire life inflicting pain on others, all the while experiencing the trauma of living such a brutal life? That is the central question in that movie. And while Logan believes himself beyond redemption, throughout the film, it is grace. It is grace again and again that overcomes every obstacle in the path of Logan, culminating in the sacrifice of the guilty for the seemingly innocent. So our culture, our culture wants to know the answer to that question. Jesus' words to Sardis here is, it's never too late. 
There's still time. There is still time. As a matter of fact, in that movie, Xavier, who is played by Patrick Stewart, he says that again and again to Logan in that movie. You still have time. You still have time. And Jesus is telling them here as well that you have time, but time is running out. Redemption is possible. Remember, remember what you have heard. Remember what you have received. Fourth, he says, to keep it, to keep it. It is not enough to hear. It is not enough to receive if you are not, if you are not intaking and keeping it. And this is, of course, this is talking about practicing, applying what you, have, what you have heard and what you have received. Keep it, keep it front and center of your life. And these are great instructions for us as a church, are they not? To hear, to receive, to keep. It's a reminder to us when we come into worship that we, that we are not, hopefully we are not on cruise control. Hopefully we are not on autopilot when we come into worship. It can be so difficult, but we must pray and ask for the Spirit to penetrate, to penetrate our hearts, to help us not only hear, not only to receive, but also to keep what we are receiving, to apply, to live in light of what we are receiving. The preaching, the word, the sacrament, all of that, we are called to keep, we are called to improve upon, looking to apply and live by what we receive. That's what Jesus told them. And the last thing, number five, is to repent, he says. Repent. Turn away from sin. Repent of the compromise of what had soiled their garments. And to follow those who had not compromised, who in Jesus' eyes, he said, are worthy because of their faithfulness to him, even at great cost. And here's what I want to say about repentance. We typically think of it as an individual responsibility. But here Jesus is calling the church to repentance, which means that the church as a whole is held responsible for its spiritual deadness and compromise. That while there may have been some division with those who had compromised and those who had not compromised, the faithful were not to write off the unfaithful. They were to call them to repent in hopes of being united again. And this, I got to tell you, this is one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life. Not to mention church life. Repentance. Repentance. Thomas Brooks, in his classic, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I believe we have a book out there. This is what Thomas Brooks said about repentance. Are you ready for this? Repentance is the vomit of the soul. That's what he said. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who likes to vomit. But we vomit because our bodies are rejecting something that is not good for them. In the same way with repentance, our souls are rejecting something that is not good for them. Sin and all of its harmful effects on us. And here's what I want you to know. Repentance is messy, friends. Repentance is messy. It's hard. It's painful. It leads, it leads to humbling. It leads to suffering. But true repentance is worth it in the worth it in the end because of what jesus says there to the one who overcomes i promise you this i promise you that white robe i promise you that your name will never be written out of the book out of the book of life and i promise you that you will reign with me in paradise forever and again within the context of the church friends this is why life in the church is so important because we are not meant to be left alone 
I am not meant to be left alone. You are not meant to be left alone in our call to repentance. We are meant to complement one another. We are to encourage and strengthen one another, to bear with one another, to apply grace and forgiveness to one another. Otherwise, we will run and we will hide. We will divide and we will seek to conquer one another with our own agendas, our own thoughts. We will be self-seeking rather than self-denying. The call to repentance reminds us that at the very heart of our identity as a church is the way of the cross of the gospel. The way of the cross, which requires self-denial of each of us. And for the church in Sardis, it was a matter of life and death. If you will not wake up, Jesus says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour at which I come against you. Just when you think you are safe, I will come and I will destroy you. Such sobering words remind us, remind us of this, friends, that there is a definite standard that the church is called to, that we in Christ are called to. We are called to hear. We are called to receive what we hear, and we are called to keep it, to keep it. And the reason for that standard is because of what is promised. And that is the last thing that Christ does. His, his commendation to the few that were in Sardis. White garment. Name never blotted out. He will confess their name before his father in anguish. White garments were worn after the king or general had return, returned home victorious on the battlefield. Names were recorded, of course, as a way of telling how many citizens were part of the king's domain. The census and confession before the throne and the royal court meant recognition, recognition of the highest kind. And that, that, Christian, is what your king promises to you. He can promise it to you, you know why? Because he once wore a purple robe in utter humiliation as he was paraded throughout the streets of Jerusalem carrying a wooden cross. And his name was written into wood and hung above him as he hung on a tree. And what confession, what confession began as ridicule and contempt as they saw him hanging there, it ended with glory and astonishment as the Roman centurion said, truly he was the son of God. And it ended with the glory and the honor as Jesus confessed to his father, it is finished. And he did it on your behalf. He did it on my behalf. And now he promises, he promises you and I, that through many tribulations, we must go, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Though it is through many tribulations, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One, your Savior. I have called you by name. I have redeemed you. You are mine. His victory is for you. His kingdom is open to you. His confession before his Father is for you. Hear it, receive it, and keep it. He who has ears. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word.
It is a hard word to hear. It is a difficult word to hear, Lord, especially in the call to repent. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be sober-minded, to have sober judgment, to be discerning, to understand the days in which we are living, to, to live and walk not as unwise but as wise. Lord, help us to grow in our reverence for you, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to make no provision for the flesh, Lord. Lord, to not give ourselves over to sensuality, to drunkenness, to rivalry. Lord, to dissension, to quarreling or dissension, Lord. We pray that our eyes would be fixed on you. And we pray that you would do this. Do this for us here. Westside Church, Lord, and we ask this in your name.